We'll do it. Uh, we'll do this uh, the old-fashioned way, like we were doing it before I came here and messed things all up. <laughs> and uh, and we'll we will read uh, we'll read the psalm together. All right, pretty short, and uh, I think I think we can we can do it. All righty, let's do it. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up, that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. O Lord, be gracious to us by allowing your word to sink deep into our hearts today. And Lord, let it show up in our daily lives as we express your word to those around us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Why do bad things happen to good people? Have y'all ever heard anyone say that? I think there's a fundamental flaw in that question uh, because according to Scripture, there is none good. No one is righteous. Uh, so there really aren't any good people. So the better question may be, why do the righteous suffer? I think that's, I think that's ultimately what that question is asking. Why do righteous people, people with in integrity, suffer. And this is a struggle that uh, David regularly communicates in the Psalms. And that seems like what he's doing again here in Psalm 41. And so I want us to look into, into the text and, and, and see what's going on here. So the first thing that we see in Psalm 41, verses 1 through 3, is we see the righteous described. The righteous described. This uh, first section of the psalm gives us a description of righteous people or a righteous person. And it tells us who the righteous are and how the Lord takes care of them in verses 2 and 3. And that primary identifier of who the righteous are, or the righteous person in Psalm 41 is 
a person who has consideration for the poor. And when we think of poor here, it encompasses the idea of poverty, but it's not only talking about poverty. When the word poor appears in Psalm 41, it's also talking about the weak, those who can't help themselves. So the righteous person understands and empathizes with those who cannot help themselves or those who cannot care for themselves. The righteous person condescends to the lowly estate of those who cannot help themselves. And then they work to alleviate the suffering of those people and to help them in their dilemma. The righteous consider the poor. And then the section goes on to show that those who give such consideration to the poor and needy have the blessing of the Lord upon them. The way they delivered the poor in their distress is the way that the Lord will deliver them in their trouble. The Lord is repaying them for their works done to the poor, for their consideration of the poor. The Lord protects them from their enemies, the Scripture says. The enemies who desire to destroy them. And then it says that the Lord will bless them in the land. And when a Hebrew heard the word, the words, the land, they conjure up that idea of God's covenant that he made with Abraham. And the significant thing about the words, the land appearing here, is that David is really kind of ultimately fulfilling, or they are seeing that promise made to Abraham fulfilled in David's reign. As David rules, the land is expanding and are reaching the borders that God promised would, he would give to Abraham. So we're talking about God blessing them in this promised land. And then verse 3 goes on to say that the Lord will guard the life of the righteous even when they suffer sickness. And in due time, the promise is that God will restore their health. But, but verse 4 begins with a contrast. And 4 through 9 communicate that the righteous suffer. Psalmist says, these are the, the righteous consider the poor, and this is what the Lord does to keep and help and protect the righteous. But as for me, be gracious to me. The psalmist is saying, Lord, I fit the description of a righteous person. I consider the poor, but I'm still experiencing suffering. The psalmist does acknowledge his own sin here, but it's generally true that David was a man of integrity. David was a righteous person, and he certainly fits the description that he considers the poor. He may not have been perfect, as no mere human is, but he generally acts with integrity and righteous intentions. And I think there's even, we even see a sense of humility here, because he's saying, Lord, I have considered the poor, I have acted, acted righteously, but he does acknowledge his sin, that I'm, I understand that I'm not perfectly righteous, I understand that I don't act always with perfect integrity. I have sinned, and yet I'm suffering, Lord. Be gracious 
to me. And then the passages that follow after describe the way the righteous suffer. And this is especially from the psalmist's personal perspective, as he is the one that's writing the psalm. So in the way, in, uh, in contrast rather to the way that the Lord blesses the righteous person, David doesn't feel blessed and sustained in the land. He feels like he has been given over to the will of his enemies while he is on his sickbed to make it worse. And then this suffering we see is suffering that David has described before. It's suffering at the hands of his enemies. So why are my enemies allowed to triumph over me when I have been righteous, when I have acted with integrity? And we, again, get this imagery. I, I think it was in Psalm 38 uh, when I preached it that we get the imagery of uh, his so-called friends. They come to see him and they're standing around plotting against him while he's on his deathbed. That's, that's not much of a, a visitation of the sick, is it? But, but that's what we're doing. They're, they're plotting. They're standing around and, and saying he's not going to live. His name is going to perish. But then something worse than that is communicated here. And that is his own friend has lifted up his heel against him. And, and that, that brings to mind kind of a, a kick in the face or uh, lifted up his heel to stomp on the psalmist. But it, there's also a richer imagery in, in the Hebrew context because the Hebrew word heel is immediately, it's akev, and I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that right, but it's uh, immediately connected to the verb for deceive. You may have noticed that that akev sounds like Jacob. And that was Jacob's name. That's why he was named the way he was. It means to grab by the heel, and it also means to cheat. So then the meaning is even fuller, because the one who betrayed the psalmist ate at the psalmist's table, he says. So my own friend has betrayed me. He's cheated me. He's deceived me. He made me think he was my friend, but he lifted up his heel against me. And not only was he just a friend, but he was a friend that ate at my own table. And I think we can understand that. You know, our closest friends are the ones that eat with us at our own table often. And, and that's something similar that's communicated in the Hebrew context. There's no greater friend than one who reclines at the table of another. And there is no greater betrayal than such a close friend plotting and acting for the demise of their so-called friend. And then in verse 10, the psalmist begins a cry. He cries out for God to vindicate the righteous, to vindicate him for his suffering. He says, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. It is a plea again for God to be gracious to him. And this was the way that this section of the psalm began. In verse 4, O Lord, be gracious to me. Verse 4 and verse 10 bookend this section with a plea for God to be gracious. My enemies are triumphing over me. God, be gracious 
to me and raise me up. He expects God to raise him up in vindication and to allow his vengeance against his enemies. And it seems that the vindication for the psalmist is immediately connected with him being raised up. They're standing around plotting against me. They think my name's going to perish. They think that I'm uh, going to die here. They're hoping that I'm going to die. They're plotting against me. But Lord, you would be gracious to me in raising me up and vindicating me and allowing me to repay them. The Lord will show that the psalmist is the blessed and righteous person who considers the weak, who considers the poor by raising him up from the whispers of his enemies and the wounds from his friend. The way the Lord will be gracious to the psalmist is by raising him up in his suffering. And that's what happens. That's what we see in this text. We see that God does vindicate the righteous in verse 11 and 12. You, by this, I know that you delight in me because my enemy will not shout in triumph over me. So verse 4 through 10, he's complaining that his enemy seems to be triumphing over him. But now he is saying he won't triumph over me. You will vindicate me. God vindicates the righteous. The Lord will raise him up and, and God will prove to the psalmist and prove to the psalmist's friends and, and maybe I should say so-called friends and prove to the psalmist's enemies that he is pleased with the psalmist because he's going to raise him up from his deathbed. The betrayer's heel was raised against that righteous person, but the betrayer will not shout and triumph over him. God will prove that David is, in fact, a man of integrity, as described in the first section of this psalm. Not, not only by raising him up and blessing him in the land, but then the, uh, the psalm goes on to say that he will establish him in his presence forever. So God vindicates the righteous. He raises he blesses him in the land. And then he establishes him in his presence forever. And again, we can even hear that Davidic covenant that there will always be a king occupying the Davidic throne. In this, God will set me in his presence forever. And this brings us, I think, to the deeper meaning and the deepest meaning. We see Christ all over this psalm. I have to admit that it's not as blatant as, as uh, the text Bradley preached from last Lord's Day, but the implications, the messianic implications of this psalm are quite plain. And that's really one of the reasons, so we held this psalm over to be closer to Easter because of, of that reason, because the messianic implications when we're plotting and scheming on how we're going to preach through the book of Psalms, um, we looked at this one and we were like, man, that's got some pretty strong messianic uh, implications there. So let's do a mixtape and then we'll finish the 41st Psalm closer, a little closer uh, to Easter. So let's, let's move back through the sections of this Psalm and, and see how it's plainly 
pointing to Jesus. The first, the first way that the psalm plainly points to Jesus is that Jesus is the ultimate blessed one. Right? The psalm began with a description of the blessed one. And Jesus is the blessed one. He is the ultimate blessed one of the book of Psalm. Even in Psalm 1, we see that Jesus is the ultimate blessed man. That, uh, and, and that theme carries right on through, all the way through the psalm. And I think that it's obvious in Jesus' ministry that he considered the poor, right? He, he was uh, condescending constantly to people who were marginalized in society. They ask him often why he was hanging around certain kinds of people. He condescended to, to the poor. But, but the word here, again, doesn't just capture that idea of poverty as having minimal resources, but as being weak or unable to help oneself. And Jesus demonstrated this perfectly where we are the most unable to help ourselves. Let's look at Romans chapter 5, 6 through 8. This shows us where Jesus has helped us, where we are unable to help ourselves. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, helpless in our sin, enslaved in our sin, Christ condescended. The ultimate blessed and righteous man considered our impoverished state. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, or died in our stead, died in our place. We are weak and unable to help ourselves, but Christ condescends to us and saved us while we were in that poor estate. Blessed is the righteous man who considers the poor. Christ has condescended to us he has died in our place. And I think that it would, I would be amiss to bypass this and to say to any unbelieving friends that we have here today or that are hearing me today, that I pray that this truth will become a reality to you, that you would truly believe and understand that Christ died for sins. He died for your sins. And you will repent of those sins that nailed Christ to the cross and you will come repenting and believing at this very moment. That's the only way that you can have the blessing of the righteous. It's by taking on the righteousness of this ultimate blessed man. I can assure you that if you repent of your sins and turn to Christ, He will save you. There is no doubt He will save you where you cannot save yourself. Christ will save you. From your sin. So we see Jesus as the ultimate blessed and righteous man in that first section. But we also see Jesus as the sufferer or the ultimate righteous sufferer. 
Jesus' enemies, particularly the hypocritical Pharisees of his day, were constantly whispering against him. They plotted and schemed and imagined the worst possible death for Jesus. They imagined the worst thing. They imagined the worst for him. And it was a terrible death. The worst possible death. And Jesus understood himself to be the ultimate righteous sufferer in Psalm 41. Because in John 13, 18, he even quotes verse 9 in reference to him being betrayed by Judas. Let's, let's look at John 13, 18 and read that, which is just a quotation. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. Who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. This was a deep betrayal because Judas was one of the inner circle of the twelve disciples. It appears that Judas was the, the treasurer for the ministry of Jesus. And we know that he would have reclined at the table of Jesus. He would have eaten at the table of Jesus often. And we even, even see that Judas is uh, miffed because of the uh, ointment that's being poured out on the feet of Jesus. So here's one example where Judas is actually reclining at the table with Jesus. He was a, a, a part of that close group of the 12 disciples. He would have been privy to the intense teaching and care shown to his close group of followers. Sometimes we see in the life of Jesus where he gathers in the 12 and he explains to them in a deeper way what he had just communicated to the audience, uh, the mass audience. And so he's a part of this close group of followers. But he was betrayed by Judas. He felt the blow of Judas's deception as Judas handed him over to the chief priests and to the mob that followed them on the night of his crucifixion. Those who stood around the cross on crucifixion day would suppose Jesus to be accursed. They would say something akin to what the psalmist said in 41. A deadly thing is poured out on him. And he will not rise again from where he lies. But just as Jesus is the blessed man and the righteous, ultimate righteous sufferer. Jesus is the ultimate one who was vindicated. The Lord vindicates him. How does the Lord vindicate the righteous sufferer? In Psalm 41, how does the Lord vindicate Jesus, the righteous sufferer? By raising him up. Dale mentioned a couple of weeks ago how the disciples must have felt when Jesus was crucified and buried. That, that hopelessness that they must have felt. The one in... The one in whom they had cast all of their hopes and all of their trust. They had left their lives and livelihoods for him. And now he is brutally crucified. He is buried in a tomb. That must have been distressing for the disciples. But at the same time, Jesus' enemies felt the op opposite of that, didn't they? They felt hopeful and proud. 
They said that a deadly thing is poured out on him. They were plotting against him. They were, they were glad he will not rise again from where he lies. He is cut off. His name will perish. He will soon be forgotten. But the Lord did not allow them to shout and triumph over his beloved. Rather, because of the righteousness and integrity of the Lord, God raised him up. We only need to look again this week, as we did last week with Bradley, to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. Men of Israel, hear the words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It was not possible. He was raised up because death could not hang on to him. There was no sin in him. There was nothing in which death could sink its claws or gain a hold. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins will die. Therefore, God upheld and proved that he delighted in Jesus. Because Jesus never sinned. He was perfect in righteousness. He was perfect in integrity. And so death could not hold him. God raised him up. And set Jesus in his presence forever. And just as we heard last week, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And just as we heard last week, he will repay his enemies. Jesus is the ultimate one who was vindicated. God raised him up. Now let's look back at the text or think about it. Did anyone hear the why question embedded in this psalm? That's what I led with. Why do good things happen to bad people? Or better said, why do the righteous suffer? Did you, do you hear that? In the psalm, it seems like that's a fundamental question that David is asking with this psalm. It, it appears in that contrast in, in verse 4, Be gracious to me, for I have uh, heal me, for I have sinned. As for me, be gracious to me. I have considered the, the poor, yet instead of being blessed, I suffer at the hands of those that I thought were my friends. Well, I believe that as sure as the, the why question is embedded in this psalm, I also think the answer is embedded in this psalm, even as it points to Christ. Listen, we are joined to some extent to the sufferings of Jesus, right? Jesus told us that. The, the epistles tell us that, that we are connected, we are joined to the sufferings of Jesus. Even when we are baptized, we are saying that we have been buried with him, right? So in, in some ways, not to the extent that Jesus suffered, but we are joined 
in his sufferings. And I would say that it stands to reason then if we are joined in his sufferings that we are also joined in the reasons for his suffering. So let's look at some of the ways this psalm points to the reasons behind suffering to show us how we need to respond when we suffer, especially in the light of the way Jesus responded, right? As the ultimate righteous sufferer. So why does the righteous suffer? Why do the righteous suffer? Because of sin. David says, be gracious to me, for I have sinned against you. David humbly recognizes, acknowledges that he is not faultless. He acknowledges his sin. He acknowledges his need for God's grace. And that's the way the contrast begins. Between those who are righteous and those who are blessed by God. David realizes that he is not entirely guiltless and that his suffering has to do with sin, even his own sin. And that's what leads him to cry, Lord, be gracious to me. We also know that Jesus suffered because of sin, didn't he? But it wasn't because of his own sin. And so it is with us. We suffer because of sin. Like David, we sometimes suffer because of our sin. When we suffer, we have to say, Lord, be gracious to me, for I have sinned. We have to acknowledge that to some degree we are in such a state because of sin and sometimes because of our own sin. And don't mistake this as a, as a punishment from God, but as a consequence of sin in general. That's the world that we live in. We sin and there are consequences. Others sin and there are consequences and sometimes they affect us in a negative way. But as it relates to our own sin, we need to respond like David and cry out for God's grace, right? And, and, and I've not been here that long, but I've heard it a hundred times already. Confession and repentance, right? When we sin, the way that we win in this thing is not to never sin because we'll never win in that way. But the way that we win is when we sin, instead of wallowing around in it and staying in that ditch, that we repent it, repent of it. We confess it. We get it square with God. We get it square with the person that we sinned against. And then we say, Lord, be gracious to me and help me not to keep traveling down this path. We respond like David, God, be gracious to me. And that we sense suffering for sin is often good for us because we feel the weight of sin's consequences. It drives us to God's grace. And so I would say when we feel the weight of the consequences of sin, when we feel the suffering because of sin, flee to God's grace. He forgives you for Christ's sake. And He will help you to holiness for His glory. We have a great hope. I think also for the sins of others, we learn from Christ and respond the way Christ responded. The disciples asked Jesus how often they should respond in forgiveness when someone sins against them. And Jesus basically answered, as often as you're sinned against. 
And Jesus then exemplifies this teaching at the cross because those who stood around and plotted his demise and said he is suffering for sin, he will not rise again, Jesus says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And so we respond to our own sin by fleeing to God's grace, but we respond to the sins of others by forgiveness. Right? And we see that, that classic example of the man who owes a large debt to the king. And the king forgives him of that large debt. And then he goes to someone who owes him a small debt, like a day's wages, and grabs him by the nap of the neck and says, pay me what you owe me. And then that man is cast into debtor's prison. Right? And so the, that, the Word of God is teaching us when we are sinned against, we ought to show forgiveness. We're not foolish in, if we are sinned against and harmed, that we keep putting ourselves in harm's way. But we still forgive those that sin against us. That's, that's the way Jesus did. And that's what we are called to do. Second, why do the righteous suffer? The righteous suffer because they have enemies. Jesus told us that that would be the case. They hate you because they hate me. And so if we are united with Christ because of the righteous cause of Jesus, we have enemies. Behind the suffering of this psalm are those who desire to see David suffer. They want his name to be snuffed out and his throne to go unoccupied. They want him to die. Even his close friend turns against him and becomes his enemy. And so it is with us. We suffer because there are folks that don't like us. And they don't necessarily not like us. They don't like what we stand for. They don't like what we believe. They think we're crazy because we believe that God exists and created all that there is. We, they think we're crazy because we believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. And we suffer... Because there are folks, because of sin, who just simply desire to harm other people. There are probably folks sitting here today that bear the scars of betrayal because of enemies, an, an abusive husband, an unfaithful spouse, a, a perverted family member, and the list can go on by the ways that we are betrayed by those we thought were our friends. But really were our enemies. But how does David respond? How did Jesus respond? They ultimately looked to God to heal them and to raise them up. They leave the vindication to God. And as hard as that may be for us, this is what we are called to do uh, with our enemies. Let's, let's look at Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 21. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, 
Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We see this in so many areas, so, so many arenas. We see the wickedness of the world. And then we want to adopt the world's ways to fight the wickedness, right? We're trying to vindicate ourselves. We're trying to pour out vengeance ourselves. And, and what happens is we're just made to look like fools because we're trying to fight the world's battle with the world's equipment. That's, that's only going to leave us looking like fools. We need to allow the Lord to deal with our enemies. We bring them food and drink. We preach the gospel to them. That's the truest need. We show them kindness and love. We demonstrate forgiveness to them so that the Lord in due time will vindicate His own people. And of course, again, I have to give another warning. Don't hear this as a call to be foolish, but do hear this as a call to forgive those who seek to or have sought to do you harm and allow the Lord to deal with them. And finally, why do the righteous suffer? They suffer for the purpose of vindication. The righteous suffer for vindication. This is the ultimate purpose of suffering in, in this psalm. The psalmist is suffering so that he may be vindicated. This is the purpose of the suffering of Jesus. He suffered so he may be vindicated. He was crucified and buried for the express purpose of being raised up. Christ could not have been raised up had he not been crucified and buried. Let's look over at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. But if we have died with him, verse 11 again, we also will live with him. If we endure, we also will reign with him. Our suffering has everything to do with our vindication and our vindication is immediately connected with Christ's vindication. It is interesting to me that in speaking of this suffering in 2 Timothy and reigning with Christ, that David is mentioned. Actually, the way David and Christ's vindication is intertwined indicates how our, illustrates rather how our vindication is connected with Christ. Think of it. When Christ is vindicated, when he is raised from the dead, ultimately it is an answer to the prayer that David prays in Psalm 41. 
David is praying for the Davidic covenant to be fulfilled. Don't let the throne go unoccupied. The enemies of David are saying that his namesake will perish with his life in verse 5 of Psalm 41. And this is the hope of his enemies. However, when Christ, or rather when David is raised from his deathbed, he's vindicated as righteous and his throne continues to be occupied. And so it is with Christ's resurrection. When Christ suffers because of sin and at the hands of his enemies, it appears again that the throne of David will go unoccupied. But when God raises Jesus from the dead, he is not set at the physical throne of David, but he is set at what was intended when it was communicated, when the Davidic covenant was communicated. Jesus sits at the right hand of God. He sits on the throne of all of creation. And rules all of God's people forever and ever. Christ is vindicated. David is vindicated. And we are vindicated. Because if we continue suffering with Christ, what does the scripture say? We will reign with him. The call in 2 Timothy then is for faithfulness. Endure. Continue in sound doctrine. Even when the whole world denies the truth of it. Continue in holiness. Even though everyone says that it's no longer expected. Continue sharing the gospel. Even though everyone that you share it with rejects it. And even when they reject you for sharing it. Because as we heard last week, and, and I want to remind you again this week, Jesus reigns. And we are vindicated with him in his suffering and in his resurrection. We will reign with him. God will raise us up. Because he's raised Christ up. And he has raised us up with him. Finally, we have the doxology. And this is the closing words of Psalm 41. But more appropriately, it is the closing words of the first book of the psalm. Verse 13, or the first book of Psalms. Psalms divided in five books, and there appears a doxology at every single last section or psalm of that book. And here it is. We can't close it without dealing with it. Blessed be the Lord is the beginning of the doxology. He is the ultimate blessed one that we have spoken of. That is spoken of all throughout the first book of Psalms and spoken of all throughout Psalms. God is also the blesser of the righteous. Those whose flawed righteousness points to the ultimate righteous one who is blessed forever and ever. And verse 13 shows us that He is not just blessed for a moment for some righteous act that he had done and then rebuked in another for some misstep. No, he is the Holy One, the God of Israel. 
And he is blessed from everlasting, from ages past to everlasting, to ages future. And I think that we don't miss the application even in the doxology. So how are we to respond to this great God in light of these songs of praise that we read in the book of Psalms, that we hear expounded in the book of Psalms? We are to bless Him, bless the Lord, and glorify Him forever. Amen and amen. God, thank You for Your kindness to us. You are better to us than we deserve. We have to acknowledge that. Even those of us who are suffering today have to acknowledge your goodness and your graciousness. It's it's why we can cry out to you, be gracious to us, because we know that it is your tendency to do so. It is your delight to be gracious to us. And you have proved that to us in raising David up, in raising righteous people up. But you have proven it to us most of all in raising up Christ. Lord, you, Christ, you have vindicated Christ. And you have vindicated his cause. And thereby vindicated all those who have joined this cause. And so we bless you forever. Amen.